You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge, life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. It's been one year now since this pandemic was officially declared by the World Health Organization. And in just a few days, we're going to hit another sobering milestone as well. One year since much of the Bay Area went on lockdown. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on KCBS In-Depth, we're going to be taking stock of these past 12 months and where we might be headed next, first by speaking with a frontline doctor about what it's taken to get this crisis under control. We didn't have a lot of great guidance on how to treat the sickest of the sick. And then we'll also hear from another medical expert about the many risks that, unfortunately, still lie ahead of us. I think there's several features that make me feel a little bit pessimistic. First up, we're headed to Regional Medical Center in East San Jose, a hospital that's been at the very front lines of the fight against COVID-19 all throughout the past year. To tell us more about what went into that effort, we'll be hearing now from Dr. Paul Silka, who heads up the hospital's emergency department. I spoke with him recently at the hospital while he had a few minutes of downtime. Dr. Paul Silka, welcome to KCBS In Depth. Thank you. So just to give uh, listeners a sense of where we are right now, we are in the emergency department. Uh, we're in an empty room right now with an empty bed next to us, but this is probably a very welcome sight to you because a month ago, this would have been very much not empty, I imagine. Correct. Um, we were a month ago, probably six weeks ago, we were above capacity with the majority of those patients being uh, complications of COVID. Right. And we have seen that steady tapering off over uh, much less time than I think uh, the average person on the street was expecting. It's uh, really been a a dramatic decline. Give our listeners a sense. Obviously, you're still treating COVID patients, still have uh, more than a dozen under your care. But give us a sense of what it's like to be on the other end of that third surge. Is there a sense of relief in the emergency department? Definitely relief. Um, We've actually seen our overall volume go uh, significantly down. Um, we're, we're below our usual census, um, which is almost disturbing in the other direction, which before we were being overrun and above capacity, we're used to having surges where we're above capacity uh, day in and day out, but we, we always work through it and get patients to where they need to go. Now we're seeing, um, as is the whole industry, really a, a unsettling calm. Uh, it's just perhaps the calm before yet another storm, maybe. <laughs> Possibly, yes. Yeah, well, we're, we're hoping not, uh, but we're going to talk about that a little bit more later in the program. Um, for now, we're really trying to get some perspective on what this year has meant uh, for folks like you that have been uh, battling this pandemic for a year at this point. And uh, to get that broader perspective, let's actually go back to the beginning of that year and uh, back to last spring when the first surge was occurring. And uh, for listeners that are not familiar with the Regional Medical Center, this is a hospital that serves people that are from lower income communities, oftentimes people that are frontline workers themselves. And so th- that really was the community that was hardest hit. So this hospital was one of the hardest hit hospitals and uh, you were dealing with this pandemic at a time when 
very few people, uh, anyone else in the world had, you know, seen this disease uh, before. Obviously, there had been outbreaks elsewhere in the world, but these were the early days before we really knew a whole lot about treating it. Take us back there uh, and back to what it was like dealing with such a new disease. Yeah, that's correct. Um, the end of February, early March a year ago, we started to see quite a rush of patients presenting with respiratory illnesses. And to your point, we knew it was coming. We knew it was in the community. We had seen um, what had occurred in northern Italy. Um, New York was a little ahead of us. Um, but we didn't have a lot of great guidance on how to treat the sickest of the sick. Uh, and what was even more disturbing is those that weren't necessarily sick, we were doing our best um, making sure they were stable and oftentimes discharging them. Most of the cases of COVID-19 are self-limiting, um, you know, but we, we saw those cases that came back um, and had rapid progression and decline. So um, in the first weeks, um, we had, you know, really this uh, unnerving uh, experience of watching a lot of patients get sick very quickly. Yeah, and I, I read that for a time there, uh, when patients were uh, released uh, after treatment, uh, there was a, a custom that kind of came up of singing "Here Comes the Sun." Uh, the staff members would do that as pe people were uh, were heading out. There, um, we actually uh, played the first couple bars of "Here Comes the Sun" by the Beatles, um, and we didn't start that um, practice initially with the pandemic. Um, and we were, as, as were most centers, we were seeing such a high mortality rate. Um, and so many of us didn't know what was occurring. And I think in a, in a way to give us hope, um, we all agreed that, that some recognition that we were able to discharge some of these patients um, would be of value. And it certainly was. Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, for anybody who's just joining us, we are speaking to Dr. Paul Silka with Regional Medical Center in San Jose, one of the hardest hit uh, hospitals during the COVID-19 pandemic, talking about some of uh, his reflections from uh, fighting COVID-19 over this last year. And so a lot of time has obviously gone by. A lot of things have happened over the last year. We had the summer surge and then skipping forward, we had the biggest surge of all. We had the winter surge in uh, November uh, uh, into December and January, and we were then seeing numbers that are, are really put all the other figures that we had seen before, uh, they, they paled in comparison at that point. You were telling me a second ago that at the peak, at the end of December, early January, you were treating 150 uh, COVID patients. That compares to about 68 uh, or so in, in the 60s uh, in the spring. So we're talking Correct. about mind-boggling numbers in, in the winter surge. Yeah, and our, you know, really hats off um, we, uh, you know, would treat them, stabilize them, uh, and then pass them on off into our ICU team. Um, we expanded our ICU services into places that we don't normally give ICU services. So all of our ICU beds were filled. Um, we had, uh, you know, made ready other areas in the hospital that could accommodate them. And our I I ICU team, nurses, pharmacists, physicians, uh, really just day in and day, day out, we're spending hours and hours a day uh, working on these folks. Really impressive. And so it was a matter of reshuffling the deck to find all that extra space? Yeah, this, you know, most um, most bigger centers, the space is there um, and we're able to toggle over and and um, upgrade it to, to ICU care. But, you know, doing it so quickly, expanding so quickly into every nook and cranny that could accommodate that kind of care took a, a lot of heavy lifting by a lot of people. 
Now, when we hear about the stories that came out of Southern California in terms of the severe resource sh shortages that people faced, you know, we heard about uh, ambulances that had to circle the blocks, unable to find a hospital that would be able to take in patients. We heard about uh, rationing of care just because there simply was not enough to, to serve all the people that were infected. Uh, my understanding is we didn't get quite to that level, but help our listeners understand what it looks like here uh, in the South Bay when things were really at their worst. Yeah, we didn't turn any ambulances away. And I'm sure if you spoke to our EMS crews, um, unfortunately, there were some waits and delays where people would have prolonged waits in the back of the rig, in the back of the ambulance on our ambulance ramp before we could make room for them in the emergency department. Likewise, we had patients that were boarding in the emergency department longer than we would have liked, um, but they were receiving care. And then oftentimes we'd, they'd start out at an ICU level, a critical care level, and we'd be able to downgrade them to, uh, to one of the inpatient uh, telemetry beds or med surge beds. And that chain of events uh, went on and on and moving the patients out of the ambulance into the emergency department and so forth through the hospital it was a, um, a, a a process that we got pretty good at yeah just to maybe flesh that out a little bit so what we are talking about in some cases is some patients ending up having to uh, wait longer than perhaps would be ideal or or getting downgraded from the ICU into lower grades of care than would normally be the case. Exactly right. Um, we expanded our scope of care that patients could receive outside of the ICU, mm -hmm. higher flow oxygens, for instance. Um, and, you know, that we were that was a kind of new territory and we were learning how to do this. Um, and by and large, it went pretty well. Now, I can imagine you, we were talking about a lot of the ways that people pulled through and a lot of the ways that people managed to make this work under really terrible, challenging conditions. But uh, at a certain point, that does take a toll on people, scraping it together day in, day out. Uh, tell me a little bit about what this has been like for you and for your colleagues. Yeah, well, personally, I, I think that, um, and I saw it on this team, is we, we kept our heads down and we got through the work. Um, you know, and we had, we were very fortunate. We had very few people become ill. Um, we didn't have anybody who became severely ill with COVID-19. Backing away uh, just to the industry, um, we know that people are now experiencing um, fallout of going through those both physical and emotional challenges of caring for so many uh, uh, and so sick patients. Um, there's uh, avenues of support uh, that people can reach out to um, in my role, which is really to to support all the folks here. I, I do try to uh, get people in the direction that's going to provide them the service they need. Um, some people will go kicking and screaming. Um, a few people have self-identified and, and gotten some support. Yeah. So there's going to be a a long tail to this. I think uh, there's going to be a long tail to this. Yeah. yeah. People are going to need that mental health support. I agree. Yeah. Well, I guess in closing then, what do you think that you and your colleagues are going to take away from this latest surge? Uh, more surges could come. We don't know. We don't know what these new variants will bring. We don't know uh, how long uh, various forms of immunity to this virus is going to last. So there are still a lot of unknowns. Uh, but even if this is the end of this current surge, you know, pandemics happen, diseases happen. I'm, I'm sure that there were a lot of lessons uh, over the last year. What do you think that you and your colleagues are going to take away? Yeah, first, I, we're definitely prepared uh, for any further surges with coronavirus. Um, 
I, I don't think we're going to see, knock on wood, we're not going to see the scale uh, in these subsequent peaks if we do see any. More importantly, in the long-term view, um, you know, we hadn't lived through this before, and now we understand that it's possible. Um, so with that, all of our strategic planning is now made with that uh, out on the horizon, that that is one of the things that need to be in our calculus as we go through these plans. And then I think, Keith, you and I had spoken a little bit about this in November. The um, Our fragmented healthcare system in the United States um, really was pulled apart. Uh, it, all the cracks um, turned into huge valleys that people fell into. And so as we go forward, Hopefully, we can leverage this experience um, with policymakers uh, and the public to really um, invest in public health. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we need that public health infrastructure. It's hard to talk about healthcare and politics because the discussion always degrades into just politics. <laughs> but um, we have to identify that there are um, communities and populations that however they got here and whatever the culture is, they need support. Um, all of these people we found even now, uh, particularly now, right? A year ago, we might have called these populations underserved, but now we know they're essential. They're essential workers. And they kept us going through this pandemic um, from supply chain to caregivers, non-professional caregivers. Um, and we need to support those people with public health. All right, well, uh, a lot of difficult lessons over the last year, and uh, we're going to keep talking about them as the program continues. But so far, we've been speaking today to Dr. Paul Silka. Once again, he is uh, the medical director of the emergency department at Regional Medical Center in East San Jose. Dr. Paul Silka, good to have you on. Thank you, Keith. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, one year since the pandemic was officially declared, and just under a year since the Bay Area lockdowns were ordered, we've been taking stock of how the pandemic response has shaped up over these past 12 months. Up next, a look to the months ahead as we ask the question, is this health crisis over yet? While, of course, hospitals are clearing out and restrictions are lifting, the unfortunate answer to that question seems to be probably not, given the still lingering possibility of a fourth surge of COVID-19. I spoke with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco, about why, after all this, he still sees another surge as a major possibility. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, uh, Doctor, I was reading through the San Francisco Chronicle earlier this week, and uh, they had an article about the possibility of a fourth surge coming up, a little bit discouraging that we're already talking about a fourth surge so soon. But they were talking about the possibility, and uh, they had a number of experts on, and they were giving a range of probabilities for how likely that fourth surge might be. And, you know, some of them were around 50%, some of them were a little bit higher. Uh, then I got to your prediction, and you were putting it at a 100% likelihood that some form of surge will happen. Uh, the only question is exactly what it's going to look like. So a uh, bit of a shocking number for me personally. Walk me through your thinking there. Why are you putting it at 100%? Well, Keith, I think there's several features that make me feel a little bit pessimistic. But of, co of course, um, if I'm proven wrong in this, uh, that will be really exciting. And I, I wouldn't 
be too dismayed by that. In fact, I'd be really hopeful. So the reasons that I'm thinking are, first of all, this is kind of like public health PTSD for me. Uh, we mm. were here in spring break of 2020. And, uh, you know, we have people making plans again. I know several, uh, you know, uh, college age kids uh, of families that I know that are, are making plans. And, you know, this group hasn't been vaccinated. They weren't vaccinated in 2020, of course, and they're not vaccinated now in 2021. And yet at the same time, we have the optics of, you know, hope and light at the end of the tunnel and all of that with the vaccinations ongoing. And most disturbingly, I think uh, we have states reopening at different rates. So on one hand, we have Texas and Mississippi flipping on the light switch, staying with the light analogy. And then we have California just doing a decent job at the dimmer. So I think given the heterogeneity in the country, you know, the public health, PTSD, the lack of vaccinations, and this uh, a group of folks who are very mobile, give me gives me some moments to pause and think about it. And I suppose in a way this would really be in line with just the pattern we've been seeing since the beginning of the pandemic. There is always this lull and then there's seems to be always this surge that follows uh, eventually, you know, uh, months or weeks later. Exactly. It's kind of like to put it in a California analogy, you know, you get the big earthquake and then, you know, you go about your, your business and then you get the aftershock. Um, so that lull is repeated time and time again with surges with five to six weeks of a honeymoon period. If you look back at our first three surges in California and uh, it follows that pattern, of course, with this time, it's a little bit different, right? We have a different landscape. We have vaccines on board, but on the other hand, we have a new uh, variant that's stickier that's becoming the dominant variant in the U.S. It's the uh, B117 variant first described in the U.K., uh, which is going to be less forgiving. And then we also have um, people that are vaccinated, like nursing home residents and elderly folks who are not going to be necessarily taking up as many hospital beds. So it's going to look very different. But nevertheless, I think we'll see you know, an increase in numbers. We have already stalled in the U.S. in general. Um, so it's just a matter of time. Talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong with UCSF. This is KCBS In-Depth. And uh, I want to get into some of those ways that this next surge, possible next surge, might be different. But b- before we jump into that, uh, I mean, I-, I-, I suppose I'm curious for your thoughts. Is this really just the same version? I mean, we can talk about all these other variables that are kind of popping up, like the new strains. But when we when we talk about the likelihood of a new surge, I mean, is this just the same version of the pattern that we've been seeing again and again in the sense that, Eventually, people let their guard down, and uh, once the disaster is over, people start slacking off? Yeah, it's just human behavior. Um, the science is clear. We all know what to do. You know, you ask my five-year-old nephew, and he knows what to do. Um, you know, it's all ingrained into us, you know, with recitation and, and um, continuous messaging. But I think the variable is human behavior, and it's very, very difficult to sort of like stay on point for the entire time. And it's natural to let your guard down. The weather's getting warmer. You've missed people for so long. We've been so good for so long. Uh, It's just a matter of all of these uh, human behaviors coming into play. So the next surge, in a sense, is preventable, but it would uh, essentially take all of us battling our own human nature in a way that is maybe unlikely. 
Well, it's not completely unlikely. And I guess that's where I'm hoping that my prediction will be wrong. Of course, I was a bit dramatic in my prediction. But <laughs> again, I'm not necessarily talking about the Bay Area itself. I'm just talking about the country for sure. And one other aspect, of course, we've learned for the entire year so far is that COVID doesn't care what region of the country you live in, what state you live in. So it seems kind of weird to have regional rules that are different from each other while yet people are traveling around. So it just seems to be a little bit of a, you know, contradiction of sorts. And do we know yet how much of a danger those new variants pose, whether we're talking about the homegrown version in California or whether we're talking about those other variants that are coming from the UK or South Africa? Obviously, there's a lot to learn. Do we have a better sense now of how dangerous they might be and, and what risks they pose in particular for the vaccine? So each of the variants has its own unique sort of characteristic or superpower, as I put it. Mm. I think for the most part, all of them are more transmissible to some degree. The sort of like uh, best transmissible one so far is probably the UK variant, which kind of like takes over everywhere it goes um, and sets up shop. We have our own California variant, of course, that was first described in Denmark more than a year ago, but uh, sort of took off in California. But I think if that went against the UK B117 variant in a boxing ring, the UK variant will win out, uh, (laughs) you know, over that one. So they Mm. both have kind of one superpower, which is like, increased transmissibility. Um, the other superpower, which is scarier, is one that's shared by the South African variant and the Brazilian variant, and that is vaccine evasion. Um, luckily, those haven't really set up shop in our country uh, to any appreciable uh, deal. And maybe because the UK variant is so fit, it's just kind of crowding out everything else. Um, and then the other aspect, of course, is does it really make you sicker or uh, increase uh, you know, deaths? So there's some suspicion from a study uh, actually just a few days ago from the UK showing that the UK B117 variant may result in, in uh, people getting sicker. But again, that was in the time when vaccines weren't there. Um, you know, it was a relatively small study. It wasn't a big countrywide study. Uh, and you know, one would hope that those... Um, individuals who got sick uh, would not be getting sick again in uh, you know, this contemporary time since we've prioritized the group of the highest risk of bad COVID uh, with the vaccine. Mm-hmm. All right. I uh, want to remind listeners once again that we are speaking right now to Dr. Peter Chin Hong, a UCSF infectious disease expert. This is KCBS In Depth. And you hinted at this a few moments ago, but I want to take it on directly now. So if there is this fourth surge coming up ahead what should we expect it to look like? We do have many of our most vulnerable population at this point vaccinated. Does that change what we should be picturing? Um, It does change the landscape a little bit, but not completely. So although we've done a great job at nursing homes, uh, we're making inroads into the older population above 65. And in some states, even lower, I mean, Alaska is is vaccinating uh, all uh, adults right now. and, and over 50 in some states, but uh, we still have more to do in that group. And of course, there's a whole swath of, of patients who are disabled, those who have other comorbid conditions. Um, so that's you know still a work in progress. But you know, I'm I'm pleased that at least our vaccine pipeline is really robust now, the best in the world, I think, to tell you the truth, for the size of this population. And um, you know, with President Biden's uh, recent announcement that 
pretty much all adults should have access to the vaccine uh, by May is, is really a great uh, one. Um, I think, of course, distribution will be an issue. So that will basically change, coming back to your original question, the, the shape of our resources in the hospital, which is probably not going to be as overcrowded as in previous surges. But we would see uh, people with infections in the community. And the one thing that we really need to know more information about that I'm a little bit worried about is the people who get infections or mild infections particularly, or even have no symptoms, uh, we've been realizing from the data so far that they can get chronic symptoms long after the infection. And I think that less understood aspect of COVID um, deserves more attention. And it's a little bit scary because it may take people out of work, out of school, um, you know, if they have brain fog or feel fatigued, uh, so on for months after uh, the infection. Dr. Peter Chin Hong with UCSF. So it sounds like the shape of the potential fourth surge that you're talking about right there is one that perhaps does not fill up the hospitals as fast because people are not experiencing, uh, those who are vaccinated at least, are not experiencing as severe of symptoms. Uh, and we're not seeing the same level of death, uh, but we are perhaps seeing uh, still some amount of suffering and some amount of dislocation and, and, and perhaps for a longer period of time. Yes. Um, and it's still really not understood well, but, um, you know, hopefully we wouldn't have to see that, of course, because again, like you presciently said, Keith, um, this is not something written in the stars. We can have an impact on rewriting this um, sordid tale uh, right now with the behaviors and the choices we make. And I suppose in closing, then, what should we expect from policymakers going forward? I think maybe I'm, I'm somewhat... Uh, somewhat guilty of this myself. But, you know, when when we exited this most recent uh, purple tier and, and even more severe restrictions, it kind of felt like the last time that we would have to deal with this. Is that not necessarily the case in terms of the pandemic restrictions? I don't really see us coming back to that point really ever uh, again, knock on wood. Um, but I do think that it may mean just a little bit longer before we open up everything. Uh, so maybe we are moving in slow motion for a longer period of time. Um, just watching the next few months, notice in the last CDC guidelines, um, when they talked about what vaccinated people can do, they didn't touch travel. And that's because they were nervous that, um, you know, we weren't really ready yet to en masse sort of like be mobile. And that mobility was what caused the other previous surges. But nevertheless, people are going to travel, people are going to go about, and I support that, you know, depending on what you have to do. The approach really is not, don't do this, don't do that, but it has always been and should be, if you're doing something, do it safely. You could do stuff, uh, you know what to do to just stay safe. Yeah, an important message, uh, a good reminder for all of us to kind of carry about as we go through our days. Uh, we have been speaking once again to Dr. Peter Chin Hong. He is a UCSF infectious disease expert and uh, medical professor. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. Thanks so much, Keith. This has been KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Benconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week.
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.